We begin today a four-part series in the book of Philippians as Pastor Andy is on vacation and then taking a little break that uh, four of us will, will fill in and each uh, take a different uh, chapter each Sunday. And I trust that together we will all be encouraged by the message of the book of Philippians. A story from the California gold rush days tells about two old prospectors who were mining for several years with only very meager results, uh, finding just enough gold dust to barely keep them alive. Then one day, they struck a rich vein of gold. In order to protect their secret until they filed a claim, they vowed to each other that they would tell absolutely no one about, what their, about their discovery. It must be kept a secret. And then they traveled to the nearest town to purchase more tools and provisions and file a claim. However, when they returned to their mining camp, several other prospectors from the town followed them to see where they had struck gold. And the two men quickly became suspicious and even angry at one another, accusing each other of telling their secret. But they both denied that they had said a word to anyone about finding gold. Finally, they agreed to settle their dispute by asking one of the other prospectors, why did you follow us? They asked one older man, who told you we found gold? Nay, he replied, you did not say a word but it was written all over your faces when you came to town. The secret that they had vowed to keep with their lips was glowing from their, from their faces, and they told the whole world. In this letter to the Philippians, Paul's face now is glowing throughout the whole letter. Philippians is often called the epistle of joy, as we find the words joy, rejoice, rejoicing many, many times. But that's actually not the main idea of the letter. Why did Paul write this letter? Well, you see it right there in your bulletin. Paul is encouraging us to live lives worthy of the gospel of Christ by seeking the mind of Christ and standing firm in joyful partnership with one another. That is the big idea that we will discover throughout the entire letter. Paul is encouraging us to live lives worthy of the gospel by seeking the mind of Christ and standing firm in joyful partnership with one another. Philippians 1.27 is the first command in this letter. It's the first imperative. It says, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I may hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. And as we will see in the weeks ahead, everything that follows in this letter builds on that theme. To press my gold mining story just a little bit further, the main idea of Philippians is not be joyful. It's not to strain all the harder to work up joy. Jesus is the vein of gold running throughout Philippians. And as we find Jesus and as we discover the mind of Christ in Philippians chapter 2 and count all things but loss compared to the surpassing joy of knowing Christ, chapter 3, our faces, like those old prospectors, 
will reflect the joy of Jesus Christ. He is the gold. Now, as we study the book of Philippians, it will help a little to know about this city and its people. The city is located in the plains of Macedonia, modern-day Greece, along a river about 10 miles upstream from the ocean. Its name comes from its founder, King Philip of Macedonia, who, by the way, was the father of Alexander the Great. It was a relatively small city, but it figures large in the Bible because it is the home of the first church in the Western Hemisphere. We read in Acts chapter 16 how Paul received a vision from a man from Macedonia who said to him in this vision, come over to Macedonia and help us. And so Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke left Asia, traveled westward into modern-day Greece, Macedonia, and the gospel spread for the first time to the west. Acts 16 also tells us that Philippi was a Roman colony city. That is a high distinction and privilege because the citizens of Philippi were automatically granted Roman citizenship. In Acts 16.21, we hear a hint of their pride in Roman citizenship as they say, these men, that's Paul and Silas, are proclaiming customs which are not lawful for us to accept or deserve because we are Romans. They are Philippians, but they consider themselves, we are Romans. Acts 16 also tells about a woman named Lydia, a seller of expensive purple fabrics whose, it, the scripture says, her heart was opened and she believed in the Lord Jesus Christ and she was baptized. And it tells us about a sleepy and even suicidal Philippian jailer who believed on the Lord Jesus Christ and he was baptized in his whole household. And thus begins the church at Philippi. Now about 10 years have passed since Acts chapter 16 and the church has grown and matured. It has elders and deacons, as we heard in Philippians 1.1. This church has even sent a gift to Paul more than once in support of his ministry, as we'll hear about in chapters 2 and 4. So Paul is writing in part to say, thank you for these gifts and for your participation in the gospel with me. But even in greater part, he is writing to encourage them in their Christian growth. In maturity and so now in chapter 1 Paul encourages them and us to live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ he does that first of all through a joyful prayer in a difficult place that's verses 3 through 11 and then a joyful attitude in a terrible adversity verses 12 to 20 and third a Christ-centered perspective on life and death verses 21 to 26. That is our outline for today. Be encouraged to live a life worthy of the gospel through these words of Paul, just as if he were praying for you and speaking to you. First of all, we see his encouragement through this joyful prayer in a difficult place. We know that Paul was in a difficult place as he speaks of being in prison verses 7, 13, and 14, and even facing a possible death penalty, verse 20. In addition to that, other people were trying to cause more trouble for Paul by preaching the gospel out of selfish ambition and 
causing strife, verse 17. But in spite of all these trials and troubles, verse 4, Paul is always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. And we notice those words, with joy, in the middle of verse 4, as the joy is glowing on Paul's face. Now, the first major thing to notice about this prayer is its concern. He's not concerned as much for himself and his unpleasant circumstances, but for God's work in other people, for the church. In fact, the little words you and your are found in every verse from verse 2 through verse 10. Verse 7, I have you in my heart. Verse 8, I long for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. And so, brothers and sisters, in your prayers, how often do you thank God for others? How often do you rejoice simply because other people are participating together in the gospel? And we should pray for our personal needs, and that is not wrong. But in God's mysterious ways, the more that we we pray for others, the more joy we're likely to find in our own lives and hearts. In this entire letter, Paul never once prays for his release from prison, for his upcoming trial, even for his own life. But his concern is for others, for the church, for you, and for me. The next time that you find yourself in a difficult place, Try taking time to pray for other people and thank God for them. You might just find yourself praying with joy in a difficult place because, you know, when we pray for one another, we are being Christ-like because even right now, Jesus is praying for us, says Hebrews 7.25. So now the next thing we notice about Paul's prayer is that it's filled with confidence. Not only do we see Paul's concern for people, but his confidence in God. In verse 6, as we read together a moment ago, is one of the most precious verses in the Bible for Christian assurance and security. It says, I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. How many of you would confess that you have unfinished projects laying around. Maybe it's up in the attic. Maybe it's down in the basement. Maybe it's out in the garage. But as you, every time you walk past that unfinished project, you, you feel this little twinge of guilt because you started something and you never got around to finishing it. Well, here's the good news from Philippians 1.6. God finishes what God starts. God finishes all of his projects. It's helpful here to notice two verbs in Philippians 1.6. The first is that, that word began. Small word in the English language, but it's a heavyweight word in the original language. The, the Greek word for began is a very formal and solemn word, which means to inaugurate. An inauguration is a formal, deliberate event, not an impulsive act, not an accident. It is planned, often in great detail. He who inaugurated this work in your life. The next helpful verb to focus on is the one translated, will perfect it, 
or will complete it. He who inaugurated this good work in your life, he will finish it. Verse 6 could be translated something like this. I am in a state of settled confidence that God, who formally and solemnly began his good work in your life, will bring it to full completion even until the day when Christ Jesus returns. Now that is reason for encouragement. So we've seen the concern of this joyful prayer, people. The confidence of this joyful prayer, God. The third thing is the content of this joyful prayer. In verses 9 through 11, Paul tells us exactly what he prays for. And we can also grow in our prayers as we look at this prayer of Paul. In this prayer, Paul prays for three specific aspects of the Christian life. And this, this prayer is like a series of three steps, each one building on what came before. For the first step, Paul prays for a growing love. As he says, may your love abound still more and more. And so the Philippian church was already loving one another. And he prays that that love would abound more and more. It's explosive love. And then for the second step, Paul prays for growing knowledge and discernment. Verse 9 continues that your love may abound more and more in real knowledge and all discernment. A few decades ago, certain church leaders began teaching that it doesn't really matter what you believe as long as you have love. And that was the seeds of the kind of so-called Christianity that came to deny the miracles in the Bible, deny the virgin birth, deny the substitutionary atonement, deny the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, and there are people preaching today who deny all those things, and they have persuaded people to swallow that kind of cyanide by saying it doesn't really matter what you believe as long as you have love. No. Paul says, let your love abound by all means in real knowledge and discernment. Real knowledge could be called sound doctrine, understanding the Christian faith. Real knowledge is the belt of truth, the first piece of the full armor of God. And notice, please, that Paul does not pray for love and knowledge, but love in knowledge or love with knowledge. And it, the picture seems to be that, that this vessel of love is then poured into with knowledge and discernment so that the two are so mixed together that they are inseparable. May our love for one another abound more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, growing and understanding the Christian faith. And then as those two things happen, the third step in this prayer is for growing maturity. The first line of verse 10 says, so that you may approve the things that are excellent. You know, one mark of excellence is making the best possible choices. That's the idea here. A mature person makes wise choices. And, and I fear that some people are going through life like playing a game of trivial pursuit. 
They, they are pursuing not necessarily evil things, but trivial things. And so Paul prays that we would make the best possible choices, the excellent choices, and then be the best possible people. As this prayer concludes in verses 10 and 11, in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Notice the beautiful order here, especially in verse 11. Righteousness comes through Jesus Christ. When you come to Jesus Christ, put your faith in Him, trust in Him, you are given the gift of righteousness the righteousness of Christ. And that righteousness that we are given brings forth fruit. And that fruit is to the praise and glory of God, which is the final goal of everything in this prayer. So I've covered a lot of detail. Let's step back and look at the big picture. The concern of this joyful prayer is other people, verses 3 to 5. The confidence of this joyful prayer is God. Verses 6 to 8. The content of this joyful prayer is a growing love, abounding still more and more, growing knowledge and discernment mixed into love, growing maturity, seen in making excellent choices and being the best possible Christians. The ultimate goal is that our lives will be to the glory and praise of God. Now, this is a great model for our prayers, and by all means, let us pray for one another for the practical matters of life, health, travel, jobs, but let us also pray for one another in this manner. I have shared before in preaching that one of my personal devotional habits is to pray the Lord's Prayer, and I take it one phrase at a time, and I stop and I think on that phrase, and I pray that phrase for myself and my family and other people, then I move on to the next phrase. I'm going to commit before you to trying to add this to my personal devotional life, to take this prayer and pray it phrase by phrase for one another, for our church. So we've seen first, Paul's encouragement through a joyful prayer in a difficult place. The second major section of this chapter is Joyful is encouragement through a joyful attitude in a terrible adversity. And that's verses 12 to 20. Our prayers can help one another to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And so also, our attitudes, when they're Christ-like, can help one another to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And in the midst of this adversity, Paul shows us three ways that God is working for good and for his own glory. And this gives joy, glowing face in adversity. The first, Paul is rejoicing in the progress of the gospel. As verse 12 says, Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. What circumstances is he talking about? Well, he speaks of his imprisonment three times in the next few verses. He is chained night and day, to a Roman guard. But he doesn't elaborate on that and call attention to himself and his suffering. He doesn't rattle his chains before our eyes. He doesn't speak of the mental anguish that comes from being chained up like a dog, having no freedom, no personal privacy. 
He's not playing for pity. He wants us to know that God is using these circumstances, as uncomfortable as they are, for the greater progress of the gospel. And then he follows with two specific examples. This progress is seen, first of all, among the praetorian or imperial guard in verse 13. At this time in Roman history, historians tell us that the Praetorian Guard was an elite regiment of 10,000 of the finest troops, the very best soldiers, the special forces. They were given three times the pay of the ordinary soldier, and one of their responsibilities was to guard the prisoners of the Roman Empire. So at all times, Paul was chained to the Praetorian Guard, members of the Guard. Talk about a captive audience. Paul's attitude was not, I'm chained to these guys. It was that these guys are chained to me. They rotated the guard on six-hour shifts, so every day of the week, Paul had four new opportunities to share the gospel. And as the crack troops of Rome heard Paul's testimony, and they heard him speaking and teaching about Jesus Christ, as we're told in Acts chapter 28, and they listened as Paul dictated this letter, and the letter to the Colossians and the letter to the Ephesians, and they heard him write about joy and live with joy, the joy of the Lord. What a unique and different prisoner this must have been in their eyes. And so Paul's imprisonment for the cause of Christ became well known through the whole Praetorian Guard doesn't mean they necessarily all became Christians, but some did. And his imprisonment opened the doors to proclaim the gospel to powerful military leaders. And many seeds were sown. And we'll even find out in chapter 4 that some of Caesar's own household had come to Christ. And so Paul rejoices. For the second example, he writes about the progress among the brothers and sisters in Christ. Verse 14. Most of the brethren, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Bravery is contagious. Courage inspires more courage. When we read in the Old Testament about Joshua or Nehemiah or Daniel and their courage to, to stand up for God, we grow in courage too. When we read the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and how they inspired others to greater courage. Paul was bold and courageous to speak the word of God even from chains and that led others to grow in courage too. So Paul rejoices. Likewise in our trials, our adversities, our troubles, the Bible doesn't ask us to rejoice in the pain and suffering itself but to rejoice with confidence that God is at work and God is using this for good. An unknown poet said it this way, Not till each loom is silent and the shuttles cease to fly shall God reveal the pattern and explain the reason why. The dark threads were as needful in the weaver's skillful hand as the threads of gold and silver for the pattern which he planned. In your life and mine, there will be dark threats, difficult times, painful times. 
but they are just as important for the pattern that God is weaving as the gold and silver threads. So Paul is rejoicing in the progress of the gospel. Next in this section, Paul is also rejoicing in the proclamation of Jesus Christ, verses 15 to 18. As we said, there's another kind of trouble here is some people are preaching Christ out of envy and strife and selfish ambition, hoping to cause distress or trouble for Paul. Perhaps they are jealous of Paul because he is more famous than they are. Perhaps he's, they're hoping to stir up trouble for Paul at his trial and his sentencing. What is Paul's attitude towards this adversity? Well, it's verse 18. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And this, in this I rejoice, yes, and I will rejoice. Again, Paul is not rejoicing because people are selfish, envious, impure. Paul is rejoicing because Christ is proclaimed and he knows that the word of God will not go forth void, but as Isaiah 55, 10 and 11 says, it will bear fruit and sprout. Today, there are almost certainly people preaching Christ out of impure motives, preaching for personal gain, for popularity. Yet in spite of that, people can still be saved. And the gospel goes forward. And you know, we see the sovereignty of God woven through this section of scripture, even though it's never mentioned. He can take the impure, twisted, selfish motives of these people, and he can cause them to work together for gospel progress. And I'm reminded that God is sovereign over all our circumstances as well. At the end of verse 16, Paul says, in effect, I am not here by accident. I have been put here by appointment, by divine appointment. I've been appointed for this. I believe we all know the story of Corey Ten Boom from The Hiding Place. Corey and her sister Betsy were imprisoned in that Nazi camp Ravensbrück. And while she was there in that absolutely horrible place, Corey began to understand that this was God's appointment. And that God had her here for a purpose. And she wrote this. God had brought me here for a specific task. I was here to lead the sorrowing and despairing to the Savior. I was to see how he comforted them. I was to point the way to heaven to people among whom were many that would soon be dying. She was appointed to that task she understood. Paul says, I have been placed here, appointed by God. You know, when the president appoints a cabinet member or an ambassador, it's a great honor. Let us remember that when God appoints us, even to trials, it's an honor. It's an honor. So in terrible adversity, Paul is rejoicing in the progress of the gospel, verses 12 to 14. The proclamation of Jesus Christ, verses 15 to 18. Third in this section, he's rejoicing in the praise given to Jesus. The end of verse 20. Christ shall even now as always be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. And Paul now turns his thoughts toward his own future. 
He is a prisoner awaiting his judgment, life or death. His greatest desire, his greatest hope is not to escape with his life. It's that Jesus Christ will be exalted. And we can also keep a joyful attitude in a terrible adversity when our first desire is not to escape from troubles, but to see, how, see Jesus Christ exalted. Oh, how much we see Christ in this letter. You see how it, it just keeps coming back to Jesus. Jesus is the vein of gold. <clears throat> Does sadness fill my mind? A solace here I find. May Jesus Christ be praised. Or fades my earthly bliss? My comfort still is this. May Jesus Christ be praised. The night becomes his day when from the heart we say, May Jesus Christ be praised. The powers of darkness fear when this sweet chant they hear, may Jesus Christ be praised. Brothers and sisters, I am reminded that we must find our joy in the right places. When we find our joy in our circumstances or our possessions, then our joy will only be temporary because circumstances and possessions are always temporary. If we find our joy in the progress of the gospel, in the proclamation of the Jesus Christ, every situation becomes an opportunity for joy. If we find our joy in the sovereignty of God, then our joy is steady because God is always sovereign. If we find our joy in the praise of the Lord Jesus Christ, we can rejoice in the Lord always. So, we've seen encouragement through a Joyful prayer in a difficult place, verses 3 to, set, 3 to 11. We've seen encouragement through a joyful attitude and a terrible adversity, verses 12 to 20. And then the third major encouragement is encouragement through a Christ-centered perspective on life and death, verses 21 to 26. As we think about the verses that Joshua read earlier, would you ask yourself, is this my perspective on life? Is this my perspective on death? Verse 21 is the center of gravity and the, the main thought of everything that follows through verse 26. It first states that Christian perspective on life. For me to live is Christ. And then it also states that Christian perspective on death. To die is gain. And everything that follows through verse 26 is expanding upon or explaining one of those two, two ideas. Verse 22 expands upon for to live as Christ. As it says, but if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Verse 23 expands upon to die as gain. As it says, having the desire to depart and be with Christ. For that is very much better. Verse 24 returns to explaining to live as Christ, as it says, yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. So in verse 21, we have the Christian perspective on life and the Christ-centered perspective on death. Let's think specifically for a moment about the Christ-centered perspective on life. What, practically speaking, does it mean to live as Christ? Let me suggest six things. First, it means serving Christ. As in verse 22, where Paul says, if I'm to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor 
for me. Labor means hard work. Many other places in the scriptures, Paul speaks of the Christian ministry as labor, as hard work, and we are called to work hard in serving Christ. Second, to live as Christ means sacrifice. It means setting aside myself and my desires to serve others. We see this in verse 24. As Paul says, yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Why does Paul want to continue living? For your sake. Verse 24, for your progress and joy in the faith. Verse 25, all of that is sacrifice. As we are called in Romans 12:1 to present our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. To live as Christ will mean sacrifice. Third, to live as Christ means submission to the will of God. As Paul is showing throughout this section, indeed, this letter. Fourth, to live as Christ means obedience to the commands of Jesus. You know, how could anyone possibly say, I am living for Christ without obeying him? John 14, 15, Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Fifth, to live as Christ means that Christ is my reason for living. The French have a, a fancy intellectual phrase, raison d'etre. What it means is simply reason for living. But it's, it's come into English language and English philosophy and literature because it's used to speak about one's deepest purpose in life. And so the next time you encounter that phrase as you're reading philosophy, think of Philippians 1.21. My reason for living is Christ. Suppose someone were to ask you, what is your reason for living? I fear that some people really have no reason for living. They're like an old log floating down the Ohio River, going wherever the current takes it, drifting through life. Other people have a very specific reason for living. Money, success, power, fame, achievement. And when they finally reach that goal, they are very disappointed to find out how meaningless it all is. As the preacher in Ecclesiastes says, meaningless, meaningless, all is meaningless. But Paul says to live is Christ. When Christ is my deepest reason for living, to know him, to follow him, to be like him, now life is meaningful. Sixth, to live as Christ means that Jesus is my Lord and Master. He is my Alpha and my omega, my beginning and my end, my first and my last. He is my Emmanuel, God with us. So living for Christ means that I bow the knee, as Philippians 2 verse 11 says, and every, that every, tongue will every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. To live as Christ means that he is my Lord. So what's the uniquely Christ-centered perspective on life? To live as Christ. Serving Christ, self-sacrifice for Christ, submission to Christ, obedience to Christ, 
Christ is my reason for living. Christ is my Lord. That's not easy. No one does it perfectly. We all struggle with sin and self. But is he your? Is he my deepest goal for living? That brings us next to the Christian Christ-centered perspective on death. At the end of verse 21, as Paul says, to die is gain. As a Roman prisoner, Paul lived in the shadow of the executioner. The possibility of death is never very far away. But for Paul and for every born-again Christian, death is not defeat. Death is not the end. As verse 23, Paul says, I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. How much better is death? Literally, the original language says very far better. The original language has a triple scoop of emphatic words. It is an intensive comparative superlative. Very far better. Do you believe that? Do you believe to die is very far better? Because that's what gives us the courage to live for Christ. If to die is gain, then I can live for Christ without fear of death. Because it's very far better. Now, Paul has this desire to depart and be with Christ. So let's think for just a moment on that word depart. It is also a vivid word in the original language. It literally means to untie the ropes. It is a picture word of sailors untying the mooring ropes, pulling up the anchor so that a ship can sail away. It is also used as a, a picture word of, of people untying the tent ropes so they can break camp and move on. We know that Paul was a tent maker by trade, so he's ready to untie the ropes. In Philippians 2.6, Paul uses another form of this same word when he says, the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. And so for the Christian, death is never a tragedy. Death is a departure. When we accompany loved ones to the airport or the train station or the dock or maybe we wave goodbye as they, they drive away in the car, sometimes we wipe away tears because we will miss them. And the same is true when we say goodbye at a funeral service. We cry because we will miss them. But we're not without hope for the Christian because death is very far better. During the famous Battle of Britain in World War II, when the Royal Air Force fought with gutsy courage against the far greater numbers and greater firepower of the Nazis, the British pilots refused to speak of another pilot dying, only as having been posted to another squadron. Perhaps in the same spirit as Christians, we could speak of those who have passed away as posted to another church, the church triumphant. What is the Christ-centered perspective? To die is gain. The Bible calls it the time of my departure and to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. If you know and love the Lord Jesus Christ, you never need to fear death. Because to die is much, far, very far better. 
But I must also add this. Only a Christian can say to die and get his gain. Over and over again, the Bible warns us that death is not the end of existence. Hebrews 9.27 says, It is appointed for men once to die, and after this comes judgment. If we do not live for Christ, we will not die with Christ. If you have never repented of your sins, if you've never believed on the Lord Jesus Christ that he died for your sins, taking all your sins upon himself on the cross and paying the full penalty for those sins so that you don't have to, then to die is not gain. To die is eternal hell. Now some people would have to confess for me to live is money. To die is to leave it all behind. For me to live is fame and to die is to be forgotten. For me to live is power and to die is to lose it all. For me to live is pleasure and to die is to never feel pleasure again. Perhaps even for me to live is sports and to die is to never cheer again. Come to Christ. Then you can say to die is gain. So Paul encourages us with his Christ-centered perspective on life and death. We've seen Paul's encouragement through a joyful prayer in a difficult place, verses 3 to 11. Encouragement through a joyful attitude in a terrible adversity, verses 12 to 20. And encouragement through a Christ-centered perspective on life and death, verses 21 to 26. And all of that encouragement is driving towards something specific. And that is verse 27. As I mentioned earlier, verse 27 is the first imperative. The first command in the book. And it's the central idea because everything that follows this seems to be developing this idea. I'll read it again, verse 27. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether whether I come and see you or remain absent, I may hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. Be encouraged, brothers and sisters, to live for Christ, to live worthy of the gospel of Christ. In future weeks, we'll learn more about how to do that from chapter 2, 3, and 4. But for now, let's pause for a moment of silence, reflect on these things, and I'll pray. O God, by your Holy Spirit, by the power of your word, do your work in our hearts that we may be encouraged to live evermore a life worthy of the gospel of Christ, to be growing in love for one another that abounds more and more, to be growing in that love in real knowledge and all discernment, to be making the best possible choices, the things that are excellent, and to be the best possible Christians, filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God the Father. We pray it in Jesus' name.